0: No, what I really want to know about is bog politics.
1: Bog yes. politics. <laughs> uh,
0: now Thomas we're getting Paul. into finally.
1: <laughs> Define bog politics.
2: It's what Donald Trump does. <laughs> oh
3: <laughs> Thing. This is the Still Talking Podcast, our reverent distilling industry podcast with Colton Zeno and myself, Brian. Today we have a very exciting guest, Colin Johnston. Did I say your name right? You did.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
3: I'll be damned. Um, Tell us where you're from and why did you make the terrible decision of joining us today on this uh, horrific, horrific digital media? (laughs)
1: <laughs> That's a very good question. Yeah, well, it's five to eight in the evening on a Friday, so you guys must have done something right to get me to commit to something like this <laughs> on a Friday evening when I've not even had a drink yet. Um, so I do have one in hand, though. So um, yeah, I'm in I'm in Edinburgh in Scotland, um, uh, and which is where I'm. Yeah, I'm from the west coast in Scotland, but I now live in the capital, which is you know all of about an hour and a half from my from my hometown. Um, but it's a small country, so that's a, a million miles away, really.
3: Nice. Yep. And you are with uh, Chris Malt, is that correct?
1: I am indeed. Yes. So. Yep. I'm the technical sales manager for craft distilling is sort of one of my titles with Crisp. Um, I live in Scotland and cover the Scottish territory for brewing um, and travel up and down the whole of the UK for smaller distillers, work with distillers and bigger distillers in Scotland. And then I also do trips out to the US. I would have been there for almost a month this year if uh, some unforeseen viral circumstances hadn't occurred um yeah oldly. colton so, yeah
3: freaking colton Is it Colton's? Is, is it his
1: fault did he go to colton
3: china single hand <laughs> is colton single-handedly infected all of europe that's uh
1: colton colton is the bat <laughs> ty typhoid colton is what we'll call him from now on <clears throat>
3: Uh yes Thanks. uh we're very uh we're we're a bit irreverent we're very self-deprecating but Colin it, this is a delight for you cuz we are pretty great so thank you for joining us and you <laughs> know zeno, zeno and Colton actually like wrote up initial questions that they emailed you like we don't do that so we must like you too um and they were actually intelligent questions jesus zeno they
1: they, were, they had me sweating all afternoon pretty much um <laughs> I mean, in the I, sense that I read them and then I promptly forgot about them. And then about a half hour before we come and I went, oh, wait a minute, maybe I should go check the questions. But yeah, I'll well, I'll answer them as best I can. And if I can't, then I will absolutely bullshit my
3: way through. Be That's good.
2: That's what we like. Yeah, we like non-verifiable data. That's what we're all about.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, before we jump into actually uh, non-verifiable but absolutely confident uh, delivery of our data, it's been a while since we've recorded an episode. We're still in this pandemic. We've Apparently, Zeno has been wrestling hurricanes for the last several months. Uh, What is it, like a hurricane every other day, Zeno? Uh, I have no idea what Colton's doing, and I've been doing literally nothing. So thank you, listener, for being patient. It's good to have you back. Well, this is actually—I think we set a record for named storms this year,
2: so it's the most named storms ever on record for any, you know, year. So, did you work through all the names already? Yeah. So the one that just hit was Zeta. <laughs> like we're in the.
0: Wait. So what comes next?
2: I I don't know. Uh, hopefully, nothing.
0: There can be no more storms. It's over. Someone call. Uh, it is All a little late. Control.
2: It's a little late for, for storms, but yeah. So that's yeah, that's what I've been I've been doing and certainly, I mean, you know, Colin, as far as the questions go, I try to do as little amount of work in preparation for this podcast as humanly
1: possible. I just didn't know I just didn't know where the bar was gonna be, but now I understand it. So that's that's fine. <laughs>
2: yeah, that's good. Well if you if you think of the lowest place a bar could be, it's beneath that. Okay. So Yep. It's actually buried about a foot under it. <laughs> yeah. When nice. you request questions though, we 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 aim to please at least our guests. Uh, so yeah, I you know, I hope I don't feel like you have to answer any of those and we were just brainstorming. But uh I kind of want to know about what the hell do you do as the technical sales
1: manager <laughs> for & still? That's, that's a good question. Yeah. You want me to answer that now? Is that is that what we're doing? We, I didn't know if we I didn't know if the banter part was over yet, uh, earlier that we we're just sort of previewing it for the for the listener. Um, well, I mean, well, I have to say, I mean, this year, uh, precious little. It's been obviously a bit of a topsy turvy year for everybody in the industry. So we we were kind of, uh, I guess, I would say that we were a little bit ahead of the curve. We, we had a big brewing conference in the UK mid-March. Actually, it was like the second week in March, um, a, a conference called BeerX. It's, it's Crisp's 150th anniversary this year. So we had a, these big plans. We were going to have a big party at that event. And then a month later, we were going to have a really big party at CBC and that was all in the works. And we were going to do collaboration brews for it out in the US as well. And it was gonna be amazing. And then, um, yeah, everything hit. So we we did manage to have a small party at that first conference. So we had, you know, 100 people packed into a brewery in Liverpool, second week in March. And then two days later, our, um, our, the senior leadership team in our business just said, no, everybody stay at home. And that, that's pretty much what I have done since uh, since mid-March. So we kicked off a whole series of webinars about a week after that. Um, we, we pivoted from a sales team to pretty much a, a kind of an a, a marketing content, marketing stroke, digital education team, largely to keep ourselves sane, because otherwise I have no idea what we were going to do. And um, we covered a whole bunch of different topics it was great fun to do because it, it really kind of brought the team together and it got us thinking about things that we you know we, we don't always remember you know in terms of some of the science of brewing, science of distilling, we got to explore new topics we got to talk about. Um, we, we got our um, and I'll talk a bit about this later on, we, we brought along our PhD student. Um, who's doing some work in um, specialty malts and distilling, which is quite cool. We talked about our heritage range. So we, we had a, a great opportunity to educate and yeah, our customers from a distance essentially. And yeah, um, and indeed been getting to do, you know, fun things like this. So there, I think there is a silver lining in that, um, a very, very, very thin silver lining, but um, <laughs> getting to do, you know, I would I would probably not be doing things like this because um, I would be out on the road. Typically, I drive 40,000 miles a year in the UK and, wow. uh, you know, up and down the country visiting customers. So it's been lots of Zoom meetings is what I've been doing this year. But in terms of the actual job, kind of um, in, in in normal times, it's, yeah, it's, it's really responding to technical queries. It's, um, you know, supporting the customers wherever they need it, really. Um, and that could be in the procurement of, you know, specific types of barley. It might be in malting, you know, crops that they have Sourced locally, we're starting to see an awful lot more of that, which is really interesting. That that really excites me. Actually, we've we've done some mad things where there's a guy, for example, down in Oxfordshire who grows um, medieval land races, where he's got combined crop populations in the one field of not just barley, but you know wheat and oats and peas and things like this. He's trying to mimic um, what what fields would have looked like in in medieval times, and then we try and malt it for them. So that's kind of cool. We've been working on uh, malting Welch barley for the past couple of years. Some customers it's kind of working with that crop and trying to understand how we get the best out of it at the maltings and then how they get the best out of it at the distillery, because it's a higher protein uh, barley, which is typically not what you want when it comes to sort of Scotch-style distilling. you know, working and developing mash recipes using specialty malts and trying to understand where the sweet, you know, the sweet point is in terms of spirit yield versus flavor. Um, yeah, so all sorts of things like that. Really, I work on the brewing side as well. My background really is in the brewing side. Um, it wasn't. I didn't really come to the distilling side and still, until um, until I started working for Cresp, which was four years ago. Before that, I worked and um, either building breweries or um, running them or working in process or engineering in breweries. So I've sort of taken to the distilling side fairly recently, but have had a tremendous amount of fun um, embracing it and being Scottish, you know, it kind of comes with the territory.
0: (laughs) So you, you glossed over really quickly, but should we be expecting a malted pea whiskey coming out? (laughs) Pea
1: whiskey, (laughs) Yeah. 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 You've got to, you've got to look up um, toad, which is the the Oxford Artisanal Distillery who we malted it for yeah actually they've got a really nice rye as well they're uh, yeah and it was an american distiller who um, who who distilled with the with the grain so
0: yeah nice bummer
1: how exactly do <laughs> you malt a pea how do you malt pea well there was only a very small Proportion of pea in there, so we um, I I would have to say that there wasn't a huge amount of science went into it. We did what monsters have done for hundreds and hundreds of years, as you check for germination, <laughs> you know, make sure it's modified. Um, I mean, luckily the bulk of it was really in the barley and the wheat rather than in the peas. But um, yeah, they sprouted. Yeah,
2: that's awesome. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, so you kind of glossed over, you said, um, you know, you're you're kind of trying to get the angle of using specialty malts in distillation recipes. What's your approach on that? Like, do you recommend, are you working with, you know, distillers in the States and saying like, hey, we think, whatever, this malt might be good in this flavor profile?
1: Is well, that I, kind of thing that it's, it's been interesting. So the past couple of years when I've been out, I've done some trips around California, California, um, Texas I've been in Chicago a um, couple of different places in the US talking to distillers and I, I think really we, we've almost been taking our lead from from you guys it, it's really the US um, craft distillers that have really started to innovate when it comes to specialty malt bills I'd be quite interested to hear your take on it really I, I, my impression of it is because quite a lot of distillers have come across from brewing so they totally understand they speak that language they they know what these kind of malts can do generally when it comes to beer and so they're they're then trying to translate that into um into grain builds for distilling that that tradition doesn't exist certainly not in scotland and, and really not in the uk in the wider uk um, distillers over here if you're if generally if you're a distiller in Scotland then you'll you'll always have been a distiller you won't have had that um you won't have worked in a craft brewery for example where you would be working with these sorts of specialty malts and so you won't really understand what they do um so we've kind of been taking our cue actually from the US and then trying to um work with distillers over here and 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 kind of saying look you know th- these products are available they definitely have flavor benefits um, you know, do you want to try them out? But I mean, just to give you an idea of of, of kind of um, how high a hurdle that is in the traditional Scotch market, you, there are, you know, I, I was talking to a very very experienced distiller um, who's been in the in the in the Scotch kind of game for decades. You know, somebody who's pretty much ready to retire, who was worried about the color coming over from specialty malts into the into the spirit now i mean it's kind of laughable in a way but it does demonstrate that that it's just so alien to them that it does you know th- that, that idea of using something like that um so it, it's quite interesting just you know yeah how far we've got to go and in convincing people that it is a thing that you can do the biggest concern that people have over here though is the drop in spirit yield when you use specialty malts and that's definitely a real concern but as i say it's kind of we're working with um we've actually got this kind of cool phd program that we're um, running at harry at just now and we're working with a new startup scotch distillery in edinburgh called Holyrood. Uh, They've just been going for about a year now, and their whole take is specialty malts, which is really, really refreshing. So they're kind of the first to do it in Scotland. A hundred percent
0: specialty. No, not
1: a hundred percent. Sorry, no, no. (laughs) They are playing around. Yeah, yeah. Where you get absolutely no spirit whatsoever. um yeah, they're they're doing um they're they're tons of of flavor, loads of flavor, loads of flavor. It just yeah, it's just this great big mush of chocolate in the bottom of the still. so yeah they're they're playing around with a couple of different things from our portfolio in terms of crystals and brown malt chocolate um, but the the cool thing that we're looking at with the PhD program is where are the sweet points in terms of flavor formation when it comes to the actual roasting and crystallizing of malts so the whole the whole specialty malt field has been built on for the brewing world and largely you know you talk about color before you talk about flavor, in many ways, okay. So you've you know you've got a brown malt, you've got a black malt, you've got an amber malt. Those are colors. When we talk about crystals over here, we're we're talking about EBC color units. We talk about a crystal one hundred and fifty or a two hundred and forty or four hundred. You guys have got your your skill scale over there, but you know it's it's all to do with the color and what effect. It, it, you know, primarily it's about color, and secondarily it's about flavor. Whereas obviously in distilling, as we have well established, the color does not come across the still. So, where are the sweet points? Where are the? What can you do in terms of time and temperature in the malting process to target specific flavor compounds? So that's what we're looking at with this PhD program, and and we've recently invested in new malting technology at Crisp. Which will allow us to essentially upskill that research to the um, to the sort of industrial scale. The, the traditional technology for producing crystal and roasted bolts is a roasting drum, which is really really difficult to control the temperature on. You kind of you, you tend to overshoot or, or undershoot, and the result of that is that you you will then blend batches to to hit. a a, a color specification so you know you might very well produce a crystal 130 and and a 170 and you blend that for a 150 but if you think about the chemistry and the flavors that are being produced at the 130 and the 170 they're different if you had just hit a 150 in the first place I'm making this more complicated than it needs to be, but the, the, uh, so, so we've, we're, we're not using the roasting drum technology. We're using a new and a new process, which has been invented uh, by a French company called RevTech. They originally developed this technology for the, for the roasting and toasting of nuts and seeds and it's used for all sorts of interesting things in the food industry you can pasteurize cashews with it you can uh, you know can dry lavender with it you can do all sorts of things with it but but what it is it's a it's a it's an electric induction heat system in a big stainless steel tube and the malt kind of trundles along this tube and it gets heated from the outside and by by varying the flow rate of the malt through the tube you're able to control the contact time and because you've got the you've got the, um, the the electric heat panels on the outside, you're able to control the temperature. So if you can control time and you can control temperature, then you can you can very very finely tune the kind of flavors and ultimately, I suppose, the color that you're that you're looking to achieve with that malt. And you have tremendous um, repeatability as well. So this is uh, I. I this is a really, really exciting area of research for me because I think that in the future, what we can do with this research is essentially produce a range of specialty malts that specifically for the distiller. And we, and, and those malts would be talking about specific chemical compounds, specific flavor spikes that you're looking for. You know, whether whether it's specific you know, chocolate notes or coffee notes or dried fruit notes, you know, these sorts of things. And and by doing this research, we're gonna be able to sort of identify what those are analytically and then hopefully be able to repeat that process um in the production of, of specialty malts. So that's um yeah, that's a little taste of where we're headed, which is I think very exciting.
3: Oh, I was just gonna say that was an incredible amount of information. Like that was that was awesome. I mean my definite takeaway was Absolutely, that America does it better, but uh, all the other information was pretty smart. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. That's the short <laughs> that version. Be, yeah. That can be the subheading, Zeno, you know, use. Uh, yeah. Go ahead and ask a smart question now, Zeno.
2: <laughs> oh, no, I'm going to put P's in every one of my mash books. <laughs> um,
1: and it will be green. It will definitely <laughs> turn out green.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, yeah, my green distillate. Um, new make. No, I was going to say so you're doing this research. Now, are these 100% single malt mash bills? Because, you know, I kind of mentioned one of the questions. Sure, American single malt is a category that's getting more and more attraction. But if you went with really traditional, like American rye and bourbon mash bills, are you doing research on how these flavors might fit the profile with corn and rye or wheat, something like that?
1: Yeah, so we're, we're not at this stage. It's um, w- when it comes to like a, a single PhD, you've got to be quite kind of, selective so we're starting with what we what we know best which is malted barley so yeah it's it's 100% single malted barley it typically you know we're looking at you know 80% um pot still malt distiller's malt i guess your distiller's malt is slightly different so let's call it pot still um you know low standard scottish um low protein um well modified high extract um uh, malt and then you sort of playing around with those inclusion rates sort of somewhere between 10 and thirty percent on the specialty malt side and 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 looking at different um, yeah different inclusions and seeing where they hit in terms of the flavors so um, so yeah no we we're not playing around in the in the rye and the and the and the bourbon sort of space um I would love to in the future, I suppose our primary market as the UK secondary is, is the U S and there's a, there's a hell of a lot of interesting work that, that could be done there to understand the, the impact on, on other mash bills, but hopefully, you know, some of the work is transferable and, and we'll be able to sort of understand, um, yeah, where, where those flavor peaks are and, and, and make some suppositions, I suppose, as to how they could be applied to, to rye and, um, and bourbon bills. So, I mean, it really was in the US that I, I kind of first got my taste of, of understanding just how much flavor impact these malts can have. I had a, I had a, a whiskey in San Diego which had been made with a hundred percent brown malt. Now that sounds impossible, but it was it, the malt had been made, um, by one of the craft malt houses in California where they'd they made a diastatic brown malt. So. You do a you do a really high heat at the beginning, which kind of burnishes the outside of the kernel, but then um, you then drop the heat down and then do a kind of standard curing. So you preserve the enzymes, which is really clever. It's way out there, and and then this whiskey had been made with this 100% brown malt, and it it was like it had it was the first whiskey I'd ever tasted that had almost an umami um flavor to it. This like earthy, mushroomy, like flavor it was absolutely incredible and it just completely blew my mind and i thought wow there's you know there's a whole world of flavor here that we're missing when it comes to whiskey innovation in the uk and people just need to open their eyes to it because i think that over here when it comes to malt and maybe it's the same with corn with you guys i don't know i'd be interested to hear your thoughts but it kind of like viewed as a it can be viewed as a commodity and it's not. Oh, yeah. And, um, and that's a real shame because the, yeah, the varietal differences are, are a big part of it, but certainly all these, you know, specialty tricks can lend so much flavor. Um, and then the the whole other area, which eventually we'll get to is well, how do these flavors then tie up to different wood types as well? I think that's, you know, how do you marry um, specific woods or finishes to specific um, specialty malt inclusion, so there's just a whole world there that needs to be explored, and uh, yeah, it's super exciting. Right.
2: That's cool. I, you know, I should say because you brought it up, right? What we call distillers malt in the states is well known. It's for high DP. It's mainly used for conversion. So sure, yeah, uh, right. So that's like pretty much like in standard recipes and like in some of the big boys, they're using as small as 9% of the total management is the malt. And it's added in the end just for starch conversion, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. It's a bit like, um, which actually happens over here as well when you make grain whiskey in Scotland. So um, because we're, you're not allowed to use enzymes in, in grain right. whiskey production either, then it's like, yeah, 10%. We call it high diastatic power malt, HDP malt. Yeah. And, um, yep. and then it's like 90% corn or wheat. So, right, Somewhere. But that's
2: what they refer to as distiller's malt here. Whereas over, you know, in the UK, I think it's distiller's malt is some of the best malt that you can get. For oh, that's well, yeah,
1: definitely. I would argue yeah. that, yeah, in terms of, um, yeah, in terms of sugar and flavor, yeah, it's um, the 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 Scottish crop. It's something like something like six hundred thousand tons. You know, it, it's a huge crop in Scotland, and it all goes into Scotch. It's just it's mad. So uh, and it, and it's some of the lowest sort of protein, best barley in the world for for making Scotch style whiskey. Yeah.
2: So you were talking about new technology that was pretty neat when you talked about uh, RevTech. Is that what you said? Yeah, sort of the, yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah, or, yeah. So you think does that give you a competitive advantage that you're using that is because of the way you have the control? Of the testing.
1: Yeah, I would hope so. You know, it's it's something different. It certainly you know, what does it do? It it does it make it better? I don't think so. It necessarily makes it better, but it certainly allows for a bigger envelope of innovation. Let's put it that way. The other the other advantage of the system is that um we can put other cereals through it. So we can play around with, with rye and um you know wheat oats things like that which traditionally are really difficult to handle in a roaster um and even just different barley varieties um you tend to have to have quite a tough husk on a barley variety if you're going to tumble it in a in a roaster um Maris Otter, for example is quite a thin skinned barley and it's quite a small kernel so you you, you can't really make specialty malts with it but we're really interested to to put that through our system and see what effect the variety has on the on the specialty malt flavors as well um because there's some real yeah there's definitely some nuance in, in there to be had um but we're we're really right at the start of the journey when it comes to this system so it's it's really only come online in the past sort of year or so um we we installed it quite a while ago but we've had some some difficulties convincing the environment agency that it's not um that it's not somehow <laughs> dangerous because it's new technology <laughs> so it's been uh it's been a bit of a bureaucratic headache but we're getting there with it and we're um we're yeah we're really excited for the future with it
2: so that's where you're hiding all your weapons of mass destruction
1: exactly yes yeah <laughs> yeah but i'm gonna keep my powder dry you know
3: yeah good man i've told i've good already man.
1: told you too much i'm gonna have to kill you all
3: yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh we're all doing it uh slowly ourselves don't feel bad <laughs> Okay, so you bring up an interesting point that you're incredibly focused on innovation, you're doing a lot of interesting uh, things with the science and the the ingredients, but it seems like in some ways, even on a regulatory standpoint, you're running up to against kind of traditional uh, traditions and values that maybe people aren't even interested in kind of uh going around or subverting like how much are you having to educate your own customers about the opportunities for innovation that maybe they think well why would i need to do that like where are you at kind of on that paradigm
2: yeah how do you how do you go to glenn and say use chocolate malt? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <Right>? yeah. <laughs> to yeah. defy the laws of tradition is the crusade of the only brave right there we go yeah yeah,
1: yeah you you've got to do it um yeah, softly, softly, catchy monkey. It, it's um, it's not, it's not easy, and I think we can only open a door. Realistically, um, is the entire Scotch industry going to start using chocolate? malt? no, and they shouldn't either, because there is a, a really traditional aspect to the liquid here that has defined, you know, a century's worth of production. Um, for in economic terms to this country it's it's quite important um, and 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 so you know there are there are some big producers out there that are not going to mess with that recipe and i totally respect that but where there's an opportunity for distillers and for ourselves and indeed for farmers is to embrace a new wave of innovation that comes with a new wave of distillers and while, um, I mean, a lot of people maybe, you know, in the US and, and other countries are not aware of just how many new distilleries are cropping up in Scotland itself. In the past uh, maybe three years, we've had at least 10, 15 new distilleries. And these are not small distilleries as well. We're not talking about um, kind of, you know, like taproom based craft distilleries that you would see in in, in a big Amer- american city we're talking about you know at, th- at the small end they're still producing a couple hundred thousand liters of pure alcohol a year um, however they recognize that they can't go up against glenn levitt and McAllen and and these big players they do need a point of difference and so malt is is somewhere that they can differentiate now it might be specialty malts which we've already discussed it might be talking about provenance and terroir so local sourcing really trying to connect to their local farming communities i mean everything in the uk is pretty local but i'm talking like really really local um you know within sort of 30 miles of their of their distillery for example or even 10 miles um we we uh we engage a group of farmers within ten miles of Aberlour Distillery up in Speyside, for example, and all their um, all their barley goes into the distillery, which is a really cool story to tell. Um, or it might be in varieties as well. It might be the revival of heritage malts, or looking at what was planted in that local area going back to the sixties, or you know, trying to understand. Um, what whiskey tasted like back then. Now, malt's part of the story, sure. You know, wood is as well. Yeasts. You know, there's so many different avenues for innovation. And so, like I say, every one of these new start distilleries is looking for a, an edge. They're looking for a competitive advantage. They're looking for a point of difference. And so, it's really, yeah, it's really exciting to be working with with all these guys to to um to do something new, for sure
0: so colin I, I remember seeing you do a talk a few years ago and it kind of went over <clears throat> how big your your floor malting operation is and every aspect of it mm-hmm. are you seeing are you seeing the guys who you know the small new big guys um are they trying to differentiate themselves by moving away from floor malting or keeping it traditional or what's, what's the trend you're seeing for, you know, floor versus other avenues?
1: What I'm seeing for the floor is really is great. Um, it it's never been busier, which is fantastic. Um, but where the, where the, um, where the tonnage, I guess, is coming from in the floors is people wanting to do sort of one-off batches. Um, so, Let's say ten years ago, our floor maltings would pretty much exclusively malted Maris Otter year round. Um, these days, I would say about over half the production on a year, on an annual basis is is in what I would call um, tall malting or specialty batches. So it's people who phone you up and say, "Hey, so I found a local farm." they're growing x can you molt it and we go yeah that sounds amazing let's let's make it happen let's figure out how to do it and it could be from a specific farm it could be a really specific variety um like last week we did uh, the, the other really cool thing about the floors is that we can kind of vary the batches uh, because you're literally just need to sort of block out a a, a chunk of stone essentially um as opposed to do a full 22 tons through it so last week um there's a there's a new newish distillery they've been going for t- three years up on a tiny island off of the coast of sky now sky itself is already an island this is another island off of the coast of sky so we're talking remote <laughs> scottish island called Rasse. and rassy um decided that they wanted to grow some barley on the island last year and they got like a ton and a half of two specific varieties that they selected and um, because they thought that those varieties would be hardy enough to to basically survive up there in the um uh, throughout the season and um and we took those uh, a ton and a half of each and we did them on the floors and um and they're going to distill with them in January and we're going to find out what what um these varieties which have probably never been distilled with in Scotland before, because one was Scandinavian and one was Icelandic. That's so cool. You know, to be able to use a hundred and fifty year old technology to malt barley varieties that have never been used in distilling in Scotland in a brand new technologically advanced distillery. Get that into barrel and then taste that, you know, in whatever five years time. That's just that's why I do the job. That's so cool. <laughs> I love it. We have Japanese distillers come over every year. Unfortunately, not this year. Um, Ichiro comes over every year and does his own batch of uh, barley on the floors. The Japanese team have got so proficient at it, they pretty much run the floors for the week. The guys like, <laughs> sit and just you know put their feet up and read the paper. They've been doing that for about 10 years now. Beautiful. Um, yeah. So things like that, that's where what the floors are getting used for now isn't that so cool though it's like the combination of yeah like using this old technology this craft but using it for innovation using it for for new ideas um yeah that's awesome
2: there is a market penetration to be had for sure even in the in the big scale on this side so.
1: it's you know it's just just like um the increase of different barrel types over the past you know decade has increased the sort of the range the breadth of flavors that can be blended in your barrel park at, at, you know once once maturation is done well it, it's just about giving yourself more options um it i mean it's you you can you you know when a when when somebody doesn't get it when they sort of go okay you know they they just watch perhaps some of the trends in the in the craft space and go oh, we're going to make a we're going to make a chocolate whiskey you know and they do it as a, a one-off and so they're not really understanding you know that those flavors you know perhaps need to you need to have other whiskies that you're gonna you're gonna marry it with later on um other, and and you need to be really specific about your wood selection as well and these things take time and take time to understand what the benefits are um a, a one-shot at it is not is not really going to work in my mind and in my mind i think you've got to um you've got to really embrace it and you've got to um go on on a kind of journey of of flavor exploration in your own distillery because of course your own distillery and your own distilling equipment and your wood policy are all going to influence what comes out the other end um, so it's it's about kind of yeah just expanding the number of players in the orchestra the different types of instruments that you you have at your disposal
2: Yeah, I know Colton really wants to know about the peening
0: process. So let's talk about that.
1: I told you earlier on that I would have to kill you if I told you these things. Um,
0: No, what I really want to know about is bog politics.
1: Bog Bog politics.
0: Uh, Now we're getting into it. (laughs)
2: Finally.
1: (laughs) Define bog politics.
2: It's what
0: Donald Trump does. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Zing. Definitely won't cut that. (laughs) um yeah i want to know like i i understand the peating process but i don't understand peat farming i guess and who gets to buy from which bog and i assume some bogs are you know protected as national treasures and you know is there is there a terroir to the bog too like
1: yeah that's i mean that is that is a good question um so we are i have to say that we are drifting into areas where i lack knowledge and so i will do my best um but um yeah there are a number of different sources for sure um the you know if you look at the um if you look at the isla distilleries then there is a maltings on isla that harvests um peat in the local area then of course you've got um, some of those specific distilleries have their own maltings, um, so they and they have their own bogs. Now they will certainly say that their bog produces a specific flavour. They will also say that where you cut the peat in the bog and what time of year you cut it and the moisture levels and all those things have a have an influence on the flavour that you're able to produce as well. Um, which, I, which is really interesting. And I think that there's probably some science in that. I think there's some art in that. And I think there's also some, you know, the effect that moisture levels, for example, will, it's not the moisture level inherently that will change the flavor. It's it's more like um, just how, you know, if it's wetter, it'll produce more smoke if it's drier like it'll burn hotter and so different chemical compounds have been produced there's there's science behind that sure and how much research has been done on it i'm not entirely sure there was one paper a couple of years ago um scottish whiskey research institute i think looked at the sort of terroir of four different bogs um they looked at islands highlands they looked at yeah different sort of regions in Morayshire, and um they they sort of went well analytically there are definitely signatures you know like you can almost kind of um fingerprint these bogs from an analytical perspective but when it comes to flavor uh, the jury's out so so that was quite interesting um but if you speak to purists and people who really know their whiskey i'm not a whiskey taster um i enjoy it but that's not my profession there are there are people in the industry who say that, yeah, there is, there is a flavor difference. So yeah, as I say, I think that it's one of these fun debates that creates conversation in the industry and there's nothing wrong with that and having those conversations. Um, we specifically, I, I can speak to, you know, what we do, we've always sourced from the same bog. It's, it's within, um, a, a fairly short distance to our maltings, which is nice are we we produce um our peated malt just at one specific maltings in Speyside and the the peat comes from a bog in Aberdeenshire um called St Fergus and we've been using that for as long as we've been producing peated malt so um it it's um the way that you cut it as well i think probably has a has an impact on how it how it burns for example so on the islands they they'll hand cut it um, and I've I've never been involved in that before. I've seen videos, I've watched YouTube videos, and it looks absolutely torture. But um, also I'm sure kind of you know fun when the sun's out, but not fun when it's pouring with rain. Um, but what do you um,
0: mean when the sun is out? Yeah, it happens occasionally. <laughs> it
1: does happen. It does. Is there yeah. is
0: there a sun in Scotland?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we have two. The thing to remember, guys, is that there are actually only two seasons in Scotland winter and sprotum, so there's, there's no <laughs> summer there's no summer um so sorry that was a dad joke um that was actually my dad's joke god rest his soul but yeah 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 um he used that many an after dinner speech anyway uh moving on swiftly so yeah so the the uh we actually our, our p is extruded um, so it's it's cut by machine it kind of comes in these long sausage like logs um, but I have to say that that gives us a real nice consistency, it's kind of briquettes almost, um, these sausage like briquettes, um, It's good even moisture throughout the year um, and it also because it's extruded it seems to give us a really consistent um, application of peat to phenol output if, if we sort of look at it in sort of very analytical terms so when you're burning peat to produce peated, um, peated malt, what you're looking to do is achieve a specific kind of a specification we're looking to achieve a phenol level in the malt itself because that's what distillers buy they're buying a phenol level whether it be heavy at uh, sort of about 50 ppm phenol, a medium at 25, or a light at 12. And so um, we kind of have having the consistency of the peat um, and a consistent sort of burn temperament throughout the year allows us to tune our process to make sure that we're hitting those specifications on a regular basis, and um, which is good. And also the extruded stuff that we use is, um, is very efficient. So we find that we don't have to use as much Let's not be about the bush. peat is a, you know, is a natural resource. Um, the the amount that the Scotch, um, or the, the malting industry uses is a tiny, 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 tiny fraction of what is actually harvested on an annual basis. Um, but you know, yes, it is it is a natural resource that we're using there. Um, but we've we certainly find with the extruded stuff we get a really really nice efficiency which means that we need to use less so um so there's there yeah, there's quite a lot of different aspects to peat cutting and production and where it comes from and all that kind of stuff but um, um yeah it works well for us anyway
0: well i was hoping for more bog drama right? <laughs> there is no
2: bog drama <laughs> thanks obama
0: Oh, yeah,
2: mama
3: with the bog drama. Yeah, no, we're no. done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, that was good. Uh, anyone have
2: any other questions or am I grunting us out?
3: I think it's time to grunt out. Colin, thank you so much. Yeah. <clears throat> <clears throat>
1: Is is this what we do? Is this
0: the thing? Uh, I've I've it's li- what Zeno <laughs> does. <laughs> I like it. I
1: like it. I've literally just finished my whiskey, so it, it might be time to go. Um, yeah, yeah I've been I've been sipping on a London rye, so I thought I would have a rye, seeing as I was appearing on an American podcast. So. Uh,
3: yeah.
1: Well,
2: hey. I I tend to grumble when I am um, uh,
1: hungry, done, done with
2: doing <laughs> oh, <sorry>. something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. so I, I did it and then i usually say we have a final thought about things and most of the time i come up with a question so i'll do it again today it's gonna to be a real easy binary question it if you were a hot dog would you eat yourself
0: would you eat yourself i know i would hell yeah
3: i'd be delicious i think we got a consensus
1: <laughs> i'd cover myself in ketchup yeah okay yeah yeah, yeah. exactly
3: yeah uh colin you're the best
1: <laughs> thanks for having me guys it's been an absolute pleasure to talk um you know the wonders of technology we can do this but you know hopefully we can all share a whiskey at adi or acsa or somewhere like that in uh in the future when all this is blown over sounds great yeah you got it, it good stuff. All
3: Super. right, love you dummies. All right.